Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Brad Lawrence. Uh, there's a Netflix TV show called Ozark that is mainly about crime and murder and poverty and drug addiction, and that is all accurate. It is very, very true. It is a redneck pit of horror and despair. That and more. But before that, I just want to remind you that the very first Risk hybrid in person and live-streamed show is on Thursday, June 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern, that's 4 p.m. Pacific, and we will have stories from Vernon Payne, Christine Gentry, Jim Christie, Michelle Carlo, and myself. It's all happening at Caveat, you know, our home in New York City. Now, attendees have to have a COVID-19 vaccine card or Excelsior pass. You'll be masked when you're not eating or drinking. You can get your tickets for the live stream or for the caveat live in person show at risk-show.com slash tour. It'll be our first time back on stage. It will be the first time we're doing a hybrid where it's also a live stream. So we are so excited for this show. Go to risk-show.com slash tour for your tickets now. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is African Drums behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Disillusioned. Three fantastic stories recorded at different times and in very different ways. Well, I'll tell you, folks, a lot of people approached me all at once in the past week or two talking about how they would love to pitch a story to risk or that they have pitched a story to risk but that they're not confident about being able to prepare something for us well one way you can work on that is to take a workshop at the story studio like that is you know right there People working on stories, getting feedback from their teacher, getting feedback from other storytellers, picking apart all the nitty-gritty of exactly what we look for in risk stories. Like there's a two-day workshop coming up on June 26th and 27th with Gail Thomas. That is, you know, a level one sort of intro to storytelling workshop, you can find all of that sort of thing, many, many opportunities, at thestorystudio.org. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Christine Blackburn, who we've wanted to get on the show for the longest time. If you know of the Story Worthy podcast or the Story Smash show, 
That is Christine. But before that, we're going to hear from Gregory Patrick Travers. This is a story that was recorded in Vancouver in 2017. Very interesting story from a first-time storyteller. I remember that show. That was such an amazing evening. And we're always so bowled over when someone dares to try this storytelling thing for the very first time in front of a big audience like that with us. You can find Greg at GregoryPatrickTravers.com and here he is now with a story we call Real as Fuck. All right, I'm just gonna get right into it. Um, there's a video going around on the internet right now of me jerking off in a bathroom. <sighs> it all started because I wanted to be a rapper. I wanted to be big, I wanted Drake status, I wanted all the girls to be up on the stage. I love you, I love you, fuck me, fuck me. At the time, I was working at this real cool restaurant. Um, they had skateboards on the wall, they had a real cheap menu. All the girls had tank tops, they showed a lot of side boob. And uh, all the guys had snapback hats, uh, rips at the knees on their jeans, and tattoos everywhere. It was real cool. So I thought for sure these guys could help me out with, you know, getting my finger on the pulse of the youth society with my hip-hop. So I decided I was going to record an album. But I very quickly realized that I could not afford my rent, my bills, and also very expensive studio time. So I made the decision that I would go homeless for the summer. Three months where I would spend all my money that I made on the restaurant on studio time. And at the end of it, I'd have my album, go on YouTube, a million views, bang, famous, and that's it, right? Uh, so July 1st was the day. I put all my stuff into storage. I, uh, I went and I watched the fireworks. And we were watching, the, you know, all the colors explode in the sky, crackling, there were people everywhere. And then after they were done, one by one, people packed up and left until it was just me. And now I had to figure out where I was going to sleep. So um, I had picked a spot in Burnaby. It was in a park on a baseball diamond. And I picked out the dugout because it had a cover over it. There was a bench. And I thought it would be a nice bed for me. So when I got there, I went there and I immediately saw that there were these spider webs covering everything and, and, and there were these spiders like big fucking Amazon spiders crawling around and I didn't see them when I was in the day but at night they come out and they come out in force so I realized that that wasn't going to happen and I headed over to a hill and I set up camp and my camp was basically I used my backpack as a pillow and I used my sweater as a blanket. Uh, so as I'm sitting there, you know, I just smoked all my weed, it was wearing off, it wasn't helping me get to sleep, I was doubting myself. I could hear behind me a chick -chick 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 -chick. and I turn around and there's this raccoon staring me right in the face. My first instinct was to jump, but I didn't because I knew he'd probably freak out, so I just stared at him. And in my head, I was telling him, listen, I'm not here to cause trouble. I just need to sleep. It's cool. And I projected it at him, I projected it at him, and you know, it must have worked because he turned around and he walked away. So once I had been accepted by the raccoons, I felt a little bit... <laughs> better about myself and I, I drifted off and I went to sleep. When I woke up in the morning, the sun was out, it was, it was a little warmer now, 
Um, you know, the, the fresh air in my lungs had been real nice. I felt refreshed and I felt confident and I felt like fucking Tarzan because I had mastered the animal kingdom. So I felt really good about myself and I was ready to go on with the rest of the summer being homeless. Um, and no one at work really knew about my homelessness except for my boss. And he would rag me on it and be like, so how's the hobo thing going? And, um, you know, but it didn't really bother me too much because, I mean, this guy was a rich guy. His parents kind of bought him all the stuff. He was spoon-fed his whole life. He didn't know what it was like to really have to sacrifice and really, you know, go for something you believe in. So I, I, I just, I didn't really let it bother me. And as I was going about my homeless travels, I came across a shelter that I could stay at. Uh, which was good for me because as much as I loved being out at night on the hill sleeping with the raccoons Sleeping in a bed would be something that I would enjoy. So the first night I got there They signed me in and I was sitting in the lounge area They had a TV and all the homeless people around and I found it kind of funny because um, even homeless people have cliques like the meth heads all congregated to one corner kind of conspiring and then like the panhandlers were on the couch like, laughing it up changing the palm and uh, I noticed this one guy, he had the real comfortable chair in the corner, and I figured, like, you know, it's got to be a real fight to get that comfortable chair. And, uh, but everyone really respected this guy. He was a big guy, bald head, uh, gray hair, goatee. He was kind of like the godfather of the homeless people. So some of the guys there, a mix, were giving me a little bit of a hard time because I was keeping to myself. I was reading. I didn't really look like any of these guys. Uh, so they're like, you know, where's this guy? Where's this guy come from? Oh, Beverly Hills? Where's this guy come from? And, uh, and the Godfather guy, he stopped him. He said, hey, listen, leave him alone. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and kind of gave me like, it's cool, it's all right. And they left me alone. Uh, so the first night, I get my bed. I'm all tucked in my bed. I'm feeling really great about it, really comfortable. And I'm just starting to nod off. And then all I hear is, what the fuck are you doing? And then you hear, what? And then some guy jumps out of his bed and attacks another guy. And they start throwing each other in the lockers, throwing each other around the room. They're on the floor just going at each other. The counselors come in. The lights pop on. They break it up. And apparently what had happened is one of the meth heads, while everyone was sleeping, uh, was going through people's bags and stealing stuff from them. And you're stealing from homeless people. I mean, how, like low do you really have to be? It was pretty shitty. So he got kicked out and we all kind of went back to sleep. I woke up the next day and I hear beside me a chicka 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 chicka. And I turn around and the guy beside me in the bed beside me is jerking off under the sheets. So I immediately turn right back around like I didn't see anything. And I'm like, whoa, this guy's got some fucking balls just jerking off in front of like 15 people. Like, how does someone do that? But you know what? I very quickly realized how someone could do that because about a month into my homelessness, I realized that there's nowhere to jerk off. And I was used to, you know, having a place where I have my bathroom, you know, after my shower, in the shower, before bed, or whenever. You get your business done. But as a homeless person, you have nowhere to jerk off. So I kind of understood that. And me, myself, I was starting to get very tense. I would be at work just flipping on people for no reason. Like, Give me the fucking fries. And Greg, the fries are in the bowl. Well, where's the fucking bowl? And it's right there. Oh, okay, there's the bowl. Um, and I was just, I was really sexually frustrated. Um, and it's not like I could, where was I going to bring a girl? I was homeless, right? Uh, so I decided very cleverly that about three times a week after I was done my shift, I'd go up to the staff bathroom close the door behind me. I had some porn on my phone. I would turn on the porn. 
I would spank one out, and I would go about my day. And I did it, and let me tell you, I felt fucking amazing. All that stress, all that tension, it was gone. I was back to work. What can I do for you, beautiful? How can I help you? What do you need? <laughs> but what I didn't know is that my boss had installed a secret camera in the bathroom. And he had captured everything I did. And I knew this because I walked into work the next day, and one of the bartenders, real cool guys, leaning up against the bar, just the fucking Cheshire cat smile on his face, and as I pass him, he's like, hey, bud, you got a small dick. And I'm like, no. Because I, I knew what I did, but I'm like, no way. I was super quiet about it. There's no way that anyone could have found out. So I keep walking, shrug it off. And all the girls are by the pass, and they're all laughing. <laughs> and so I go, hey, what's up? And one of the girls just recoils, ew. And that's when I knew. I'm like, oh, man, something's, something's going on here. So I walk upstairs to the staff bathroom to get changed, and my boss is there. He's just grinning. He's like, hey, so how'd you like that, bud? And that's when I knew. That's when I knew that they had figured it out. And I said, you know what? It was really stress relieving. And I shrugged it off, and I went to work. And that day at work was the most awkward, awkward day of my life. I'd be calling orders. No one would respond to me. They're laughing. They, they don't, no one's looking me in the eye from the servers to the cooks. I was just a fucking leper. No one fucking... Uh, and what made it worse is that it didn't just stop at the restaurant because, you know, he showed them and then they started to show their friends and then it ended up on Facebook and then it just started going around and round and round to the point where I would be walking down the street and people a block away, you just see, <laughs> they'd recognize me and they'd start laughing. And that really does something to a man's psyche when people you don't even know don't even know what you've been through, what you're sacrificing and you're working for. Look at you and you're like, what a fucking pervert. What a fucking disgusting loser. Who the fuck jerks off at work? And everywhere I went, I could not escape the eyes. It got to the point where I couldn't even leave my house because of this pressure that I would feel. And as for my hip hop career, well, I mean, who the fuck wants to go to a show with a guy who's famous for jerking off in a bathroom? I mean, my street cred went to shit. And all the guys that I thought were my homies, that I thought were my crew, that I thought were, you know, blood, uh, they weren't because it was not cool to jack off. So I immediately lost all my friends and all my connections. Um, so in the end, I did quit. I quit my job and I quit hip hop. And the reason for that is not because I was in that state where no one liked me because I knew I had talent. I was really good and I could take that challenge and I could let them hate me and I could do what I do and eventually I would, you know, surpass that and rise above it and I could still make it. If I didn't have the confidence in my skill, I would have never gone homeless in the first place. I mean, that's a pretty big leap to take when you're not too sure about what you're doing. The reason that I quit is because in the hip-hop industry, you depend on the opinions of the youth, the little kids. And why the fuck do I want to work for them when I made that sacrifice and they laughed in my face and kicked me right the fuck out of the club? I thought, I thought I wanted to be like that godfather guy in the homeless shelter, the one who stands up for the little guy, 
who's not so cool, he's not so rich, he's not in fashion, doesn't have the coolest tattoos, but he's just real as fuck. And let me tell you something, there is nothing more real as fuck than jerking off in your work bathroom. When I was 15 years old, I was sitting at the dinner table with my parents. It was just the three of us. My four older sisters and my brother were already out of the house, college, etc. And it was just down to the three of us. We were having tomato soup and grilled cheese, like comfort food. And then out of the blue, my mother pulls this foam bill out from underneath her plate. It was like, what is, what's happening? What is she doing? And then she starts waving it in the air and she says, Jack, who are you calling in the 935? We don't know anybody in the 935, Jack. We're 412. And I looked at my dad, like just a glimpse, and I saw total guilt in his eyes. And then all of a sudden he denied it. Lillian, that's ridiculous. But then he looked down at his plate and then he, pushed his chair back from the table, got up, walked to the end of the hallway, opened up, you know, his closet, and we heard him rustling around. And then he turned around, walked past us in the dining room, and left. So then it was just my mom and I at the dining room table, and uh, nobody said anything. She did the dishes. I went up to my room. And the next day when I got home from school, I opened the door, and I could see my dad's closet at the end of the hallway and it was like a little bit open so I walked down the hallway and I opened the door and it was empty you know like all of his uh, suits his shirts his ties it turns out my dad moved in with the lady from the 935 and at that point I didn't see my dad for nine years and that night at the table it was just me and my mom so we'd gone from eight to three to two and uh Nobody said anything. And then she looked up and she said, your father doesn't love us anymore. I was so pissed, you know? And of course, I was pissed at my dad, but he wasn't there, right? So of course, I'm now angry and I'm 15 and I'm angry at her because she is there, you know? Like, why did he leave? Why did you let him leave? Like, why couldn't you be a better wife? So I kind of decided right there and then that that wasn't going to happen to me. I was going to be good to a man, and nobody's going to leave me. Nobody. So now we fast forward, and I am in college. My junior year, I was 19. I was pretty young in college. And my girlfriends and I, we used to go to this, the campus Rathskeller, which is a bar, And every Tuesday night, they had this musician there who was like a one-man band, really. He played Brown Eyed Girl, you know, in the corner of the bar. But this guy was really good. He had a harmonica strapped around his neck and his foot, like, tapped continuously on a tambourine. He knew every song. I mean, everything you wanted, he could play it. But what I was really most impressed with was that he could play Dan Fogelberg. 
Now, I don't know if your listeners know anything about 70s rock, but there was this period when long-haired, you know, guitar players in the 70s were all the rage, like James Taylor and Cat Stevens and Dan Fogelberg. And now I'm in the Rathskeller with my girlfriends, and here's this bearded guitar player, and his name was Jim Wilson, and he is playing that song from Dan Fogelberg, you know? Met my own lover in the grocery store The snow was falling Christmas Eve And then she spills her purse, and then they laugh until they cry? Well, I was just mesmerized. And also, he would come over during his breaks to our table, and he would always bring a pitcher of beer, even though we were all underage. And on the breaks, he would give me the most attention. Thank you very much. I love attention. Anyway, one Tuesday night, I was talking to John on his break, and I was telling him about my grow-a-frog. Now, a grow-a-frog is its like a tiny tadpole you order by mail, There were these little flyers that fell out of the Sunday paper advertising for them all the time. And so I ordered that tadpole, and he did indeed turn into a frog, and I named him Howard. So one afternoon, my neighbor Lynn is visiting my dorm room, and for whatever reason, she picks up Howard out of the tank, and then the slippery frog fell to the floor, and Lynn picks it up, runs out into the hallway, and throws Howard down the garbage chute. And as I explained this to John on his break, you know, I started crying again. Because guess what? I got even more attention when I cried. The very next week, when John walked into the Rathskeller with his guitars, he was also coming in with a 10-gallon aquarium. On half of the aquarium was water, and on the other half was dirt. And in the middle sat a big, shiny, green frog. And then he played Dan Fogelberg's obscure Looking for a Lady, and he asked me out. Now, our first date was at Red Lobster, where he taught me to eat a lobster. Plus, he let me sneak sips of his frozen strawberry daiquiri, which came in a keepsake glass, which I got to keep, thank you very much. After Red Lobster, he took me to Mario's Pub, and even though I was only 19, it was easy to get me in because this was John's weekly gig. You know, he played there every Friday night to these drunken businessmen with their ties off, screaming the lyrics to Gloria. But those Friday nights became a really... Very, very common thing for me to do. Every Friday night, I was at Mario's. And at one point, John even got us mugs from behind the bar, another keepsake mug. And mine said, I'm with the band. And his said, I'm with the blonde. And guess what? That night, after the Red Lobster night, it was Valentine's Day. And the phone rings in my dorm room, and I pick it up, and it's the front desk, and there's a package for me downstairs. So I took the elevator down the nine floors to the lobby, and when the doors opened, there's like the biggest Valentine ever. And of course, it's for me, and of course, it's from John. And there were five notes in the basket. And one said, smell the flowers. And there were these daisies. And then the note said, taste the apple. 
it was a big shiny apple. And then one said, see the beautiful pictures. And there was like the stained glass paper you could paste on the window that had pretty colors coming through. Then the note said, hear my song. And there was a cassette in the basket with the label Christine, which was the name of a song that apparently he had written in the last eight hours. And then there was another note and it said, and feel my love for you. And let me tell you something, with all five senses, I fell in love. I adored John, okay? He was not like the other guys I dated. He was much more sophisticated, okay? Not only did he take me to Red Lobster, but he took me to Bob Evans. He lived in his own apartment, of course, and it was in the trendy part of town. It was in an area called Shadyside. And the first time he took me to his apartment, it was after a gig, I go into his bathroom and I see these little white pieces of paper on the floor. I'm just like, that's weird, but, you know, what do I know? So then I'm out in his, by the way, he had like a captive bathroom. Do you know what that means? So you have to walk through the bedroom to get to the bathroom. It's called a captive bathroom. If somebody comes over, you have to say, oh, sorry, you have to, you know, go through my bedroom. Sorry, the bed's not made or whatever. So I'm in the captive bathroom and so I have to walk past to his king size water bed and this huge 55 gallon aquarium, which believe you me, he was going to show me. <laughs> As we sit on the water, we look at the water, you get it. <laughs> so anyway, I walk out to the living room and he's there. And we're chatting, and he says, out of the blue, he says, Hey, do you know those DJs, Jimmy and Steve, from the DVE Morning Show? And I'm like, yeah, I know Jimmy and Steve. Everybody knows Jimmy and Steve. And then he said, well, actually, I look just like Steve. Steve Hansen. What? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Steve Hansen, he's, he's bald. Oh, well, actually, this is a hairpiece. You know, I was floored. I didn't know what to say. I, I, I'd never met anybody that wore a hairpiece. And then he scratches his head, and I could see the hair move. And I was so grossed out. And then he goes, well, listen, it really itches. I'm going to go take it off. And he goes back to the captive bathroom. And I am sitting there, and I didn't even know you could go bald at 31, Okay. And trust me, I know there's a lot of guys out there that are bald and they're really good looking. That's okay, fine. But I was 19 and I was looking for Fogelberg hair. And I didn't have any idea what this guy was going to look like when he came out of the bathroom. So I just sat there thinking about the DVE morning show and Jimmy and Steve. And folks, when he came out of the bathroom, let me tell you something. He didn't just look like Steve Hansen. He looked like Gandhi. And I tried not to let it bother me, you know, the hair piece. I mean, it's no big deal, right? What's the big deal? But it did bother me, okay? Because it was always like a secret and he wouldn't play any gigs unless that stupid hair piece was on. And then there was like this wig form at the top of the closet where he stored the wig when he wasn't wearing it. And by the way, the tape tabs on the bathroom floor, it was tape tabs. This is how he held the wig on his head with these double-sided sticky tapes. But you know what? I was his muse. I was going to be like his Linda McCartney. And I was going to be like whoever Dan Fogelberg was with that week. I was going to be that girl. And I believed in him. And then about 
Oh, gosh, maybe just a little bit long. I was about 22 when he asked me to move in with him. And so I said yes. And I was already out of college, but I was a waitress. And we moved into a new one-bedroom apartment, a bigger apartment. And we each brought two cats. So now there are four cats in a one-bedroom apartment. Sweetie and Spook and Stan and Dave. That apartment stunk, by the way. It really did. But I was there living with my musician boyfriend, and I went to all of his gigs, and it was fabulous. About a year after living with him, I saw an ad in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette looking for flight attendants. And with my college-educated mind, I thought to myself, well, if I can waitress on the ground, I can waitress in the air. And so... I became a flight attendant. It took a long time, a lot of interviews and physicals and stuff like that. But finally, I did become a flight attendant and I was away from home a lot. And I missed John so much. Like I missed being with him and going to his gigs and I missed the attention. And then it occurred to me, wait a minute, if we got married, he could fly with me. So we did. We got married. And John sang a beautiful song at our wedding to me that he wrote. And then we went on our honeymoon to Europe for free, of course. Soon after that, we were living in Pittsburgh in our apartment. And then John, he loved my flight benefits even more than I did. I mean, he started flying to Nashville all the time. He was going to Nashville. He was playing gigs. He was buying equipment. He was, you know, meeting people. And then finally, he just moved to Nashville. While I got rid of our apartment and moved in with his parents, you know, to save money. I went to Nashville as much as I could, you know, because I wanted to be with him. And so it was more airports and more standby. But I wanted to be with him. You know, I, again, I'm the biggest fan he has. And I believed in him. His job was as a roving musician in Opryland. It was only a matter of time. So... All this time, you know, I am flying and I'm going down as often as I can. And then about a year after that, I became a real estate agent in addition to being a flight attendant because John and I wanted to buy our own home in Pittsburgh so we could save on the closing costs, you know, we'd buy our own house and all that. And, you know, I was interested. So I got myself a real estate license, which again took some time. Uh, But it happened. It was so exciting. And we looked around at some townhouses. And sure enough, we found a townhouse. And it was so exciting. And about two weeks before we were supposed to close on the townhouse, right before we were supposed to move in, I was out on a trip. And I came home. It was a Saturday. And I got off the trip. And I drove home as fast as I could. I changed out of my uniform, put on my cool going out clothes, because I was going to the Fireside Inn where my husband was playing that night. And it was this great gig. And, you know, it was just going to be so much fun. And a bunch of my flight attendant friends were coming, which was a big deal for me because we didn't all get together often outside of flying. And and, and everybody was so impressed by him. You know, I would say, just ask him to play any song. Seriously, any song. He will know it. And anyway, on the break, I asked John for the keys to his van so I could take my friends outside because I wanted to show them these pictures that we had taken of our townhouse that we had just bought, right? It was right before Christmas, and we were standing in the front yard of this townhouse with this big banner across us, and it said, look what Santa brought us. 
And back then, you know, you couldn't just make a banner, right? I mean, my sister printed that out on an inkjet printer from work, and it must have taken her six hours, but she did it, and the picture was great, and the postcard was great, and I couldn't find the pictures in the van. You know, it was really chilly outside. It was snowing. And I'm in the I'm in the van with my friends, Karen and Kimberly, and we're looking for the pictures. And, and the van is just trashed, right? And I see, like, the Columbia House record thing. And I see, you know, maybe a BMG record club offer, Rolling Stone magazine. There's bills. And then I see this card. And it's a... a it, it, it's in the envelope And John's name is written on the outside The envelope is open So I take the card out And and then the front of the card It says Peace on earth There's like a dove I open it up And it says John I'm so sorry That you're going through this And soon it will be over And we'll be together I closed the card And I looked up And my husband was standing right there Outside the window of the van and he held the the pictures of our townhouse in his hand. I could see the snow falling behind him. There was this huge light in the parking lot, and he just was white. And I put the window down, and I held up the card, and I said, what the fuck? And he goes, no, 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 no. She's just a fan. She's just a friend. It's nothing. She's just a, a fan. And I thought, like me and then he just like turned around and walked back into the bar and I sat there with my friends and nobody said anything we could practically hear the snow falling outside it was so quiet and then finally we got out of the van and we went back inside and we did not speak of this what we had just learned and I drank And I drank. John was playing Margaritaville. It just went seamlessly into Cheeseburger in Paradise. And I danced. And I was drunk. And at the end of the night, I could not drive home. And my friend Karen, she said, you're going to drive home with me. I'll take you home. And I remember my husband, he didn't say, hey, Christine, come with me. You know, honey, let's go home. We need to talk. He He just let me go with Karen. So I went to her house, and that night I'm on her couch, and I couldn't sleep because I'm thinking about this card. And does it say Lori or Laura or Lara? Lara. It says Lara. Wait a second. I know this girl. Her name is Lara Vanderbush, and she comes to all of my husband's gigs. She has this bleach blonde hair, and she's always fake tan. And she wears these tiny little tank tops, and she always requests that stupid song, Brandy. She was younger than me. Wait a second. I'm 12 years younger. She she was 14 years younger than my husband. In the morning, I quickly got myself together from Karen's place and I drove away quickly to my apartment, you know, because I had this newfound knowledge. I'm going to spill it out to John. I'm going to approach him right now, right here. And I opened the door to my apartment and it was like empty. And I'm like, what? We've been robbed. And I pick up the phone and I dial 911. Yeah, yeah, we're robbed. The stereo is gone. And there's three guitars missing. What my ovation is here. And there's um, wait a second, sweetie, sweetie, spook, spook, spook. Two cats were gone. And that was when I realized when I was counting cats that he had moved out. I walked back the hallway to the bedroom. 
And I looked in and this huge dresser that we had from his grandmother, it had three huge drawers and the drawers were gone, but the dresser was still there. And it looked like two eyes and a mouth, like laughing at me, like you didn't see this coming. I told the cops that we weren't robbed. I told them it wasn't an emergency. But I was robbed. I was robbed of my townhouse and I was robbed of my marriage. And a few weeks after that, I got this letter from his grandmother. And she asked me if I would take it easy on John because he and his girlfriend Lara were expecting a child. So he got another girl pregnant and he had his grandmother tell me. He didn't have any class. He wasn't Dan Fogelberg. He was just some guy sitting in the corner of a bar who plays brown-eyed girl. A guy who hits on teenagers and gets them drunk. And I was now 26 years old. And I was a flight attendant and I was also a real estate agent. And I had my whole life in front of me. And he was just this guy playing cover songs, playing brown-eyed girl in the corner of a bar with a hairpiece. So I'd like to say that this, um, you know, this was the last time I got my shit together and this was, you know, this was it. But unfortunately, there would be more guys like a soccer player and a musician and a lawyer and a filmmaker and a comic. But now I'm on a better path, you know. I realize I can write my own story. I could go to Los Angeles. I can become a podcaster. I can become a comedian. I can have my own voice. I don't have to be anybody else's muse. Sometimes guys are just assholes and they leave. You ask my mother. She did not deserve what my dad did to her. And she did not deserve what I did to her. So I'm still learning and I'm still growing, but I think I, I think I pretty much got my shit together. Thank you. This is Cat Stevens, who goes by Yusuf now. Oh my gosh, this is one of my all-time favorite songs. Tuesday's Dead from Teaser and the Firecat. We used to have this LP when I was a kid. 
And we just heard from Christine Blackburn. Look, look up storyworthypodcast.com or storysmashshow.com. Two shows that Christine works on there in L.A., and she's the best. And, and that recording session was so awesome. She had originally told that story at a Risk Live show years ago, but the sound was just too messed up to save. So she was able to just tell it to me online. And it turned out great like that. And Jeff Barr did the, the editing with all the 70s long hair folk music in it. Folks, if you want to hear more stories, well, there are 134 bonus stories over at Patreon now, and also 50 check-ins. There's the free online story studio classes available over there. There's all kinds of random bonus content happening there, and links to the past live streams there. They're still living there, too. So listen, it's patreon.com slash risk, and by becoming a member, you are helping keep this and the story studio running. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show folks if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues june's journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iphone or your android you are uncovering the mystery of june's sister's murder it's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now, our final story on this week's episode is a really special one. If you remember, last summer I had to go home to Cincinnati for my father's funeral. And we had a couple of live streams while I was gone that were hosted by Brad and Cindy. Brad Lawrence and Cindy Freeman are a married couple who are both incredible story coaches who do a ton of work for us on risk and at the Story Studio. Now, you should also check out that Brad has an audiobook in podcast form called Maxine and the Planets Unknown. Anywhere you can get podcasts, check out Maxine and the Planets Unknown. And here is Brad Lawrence now with a story we call Strays. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Brad Lines. Thank you. Uh, obviously, you know, with Kevin being away in Cincinnati attending to his father's funeral, and our podcast episode this week was all about dads. Clearly, like dads is on dads are on everyone's mind here at risk, and uh, naturally, my thoughts turned to my stepfather's funeral, which was a few years back, uh, and I had to go to uh, back home to Missouri for it. I I come from a terrible place. Uh, it is an awful place. It is called the Ozarks. Uh, there's a Netflix TV show called Ozark that is mainly about crime and murder and poverty and drug addiction, and that is all accurate. It is very, very true. It is a redneck pit of horror and despair. Most people think of Missouri as being the Midwest, and that is 75% true. Uh, but that bottom 25%, that is where the Ozarks are. That is very much the South. And make no mistake, because they will correct you. And fresh from the earliest age, I knew that I needed to not be there. I needed to get out uh, immediately, even after the mines closed, and my mom and stepfather moved us up to a suburb of St. Louis. I still... I knew I had to go. Like, that was not far enough. I had to go. And part of that was because of Missouri. Part of that was, you know, the Ozarks themselves. But another part of that was my relationship with my stepfather, which was not good. Well, my stepfather was kind of a angry fireplug of a man. Like, imagine, like, a violently angry russet potato. <laughs> Right, um, who was sort of perpetually outraged by how you'd mowed the lawn, like enraged anew every time for 18 years. Like that was our relationship. So pretty much as soon as I could get out of there, I did. I had no life skills. I had no plan. I just sort of wandered off into the wilderness and you know, sort of trying my luck. And eventually, my wanderings brought me around to New York City, where I have lived now happily uh, for longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life, but that means that now, when I have to return to Missouri for any reason, and especially if I have to return to the Ozarks for any reason, my older sister Amy takes great pleasure in introducing me to everyone we meet as, this is my brother Brad, he lives in New York City. <laughs> I think she does this for two reasons. Uh, the first is because I actually do think that Amy is actually very proud of me for getting out and pursuing the kind of life that I wanted to lead. I think that's true. I think she's very proud of me. But I think the second and more substantial reason is that she knows that the minute the words New York City leave her mouth, an awkward and terrible <laughs> silence will descend between me and whoever we're speaking to, uh, which in this case will inevitably be uh, a man wearing a trucker cap with an obscene logo on it uh, to a funeral. And this person will then silently judge me for presumably silently judging them and of course deciding that I am better than they are uh, but quite frankly the fact that I have not worn an obscene carter cap to a funeral does have me feeling like putting on airs uh, you know but actually to my stepfather's funeral I was actually one of only two people who wore a suit the other person who wore a suit was the minister and I was the only one wearing a suit that fit the minister was a man, he's a big man, he's a man of like 300 pounds, he, he, the suit was about two sizes too big, he'd overshot, which I found to be a strange choice, but he was not our minister, he was a loner 
from some cousins because uh, we had dragged my stepfather back down from the suburbs of St. Louis back down to the Ozarks uh, because this is our ancestral homeland and where all of us must be interred upon our death <laughs> and where I have made my wife Cindy swear that I will <laughs> never end up. And Cindy, for her part, Cindy was raised in an upper middle class suburb of Boston, a civilized place, and she wakes up every single morning and thinks to herself, how can I make the world better? What can I do to help? And I, that's completely true. That's her first thought in the morning. It's infuriating, but that's who she is. And so this day, upon seeing the minister, who is kind of, you know, sort of bumbling around the place, kind of sort of trying to work his way into little huddles of my relatives to try to get, you know, them to talk to them, talk to them about my stepfather, because he never met the man. He's trying to get anecdotes that he can use for the service the next day. And Cindy sort of sees him struggling and bumbling along. And she's like, she swoops in to save it. And she's like, you know, why don't I help you out? I know some of these people. I can help you interview people. And she sort of appoints herself his assistant, right? And he'd already made a run at me. Like, he came at me, and at which point my sister was like, this is my brother Brad. He lives in New York City. And an awkward and terrible silence fell between me and the minister. Okay, and then Cindy swooped in, and I excused myself to go. I was like, I'm going to go check on Mom. And so that's what I did. I went and checked on my mother, who was sitting at the front of the funeral home, the first pew, uh, you know, looking at the casket. And she was alone at that point. When I walked up on her, she was alone. She was kind of sitting there. You could sort of see a far-off expression in her face, kind of mulling the years. And there were a lot of years that had passed under the bridge, and she was burying her second husband. And I sat down next to her, and she reached out and kind of patted my leg. And we sat in silence for a while, because there really wasn't much to say. We just kind of sat together. And then eventually some friends of hers showed up, and she kind of lit up. And I thought, okay, she's in safe hands. I should go see if Cindy needs to be saved. And so I hopped up, and I'm going down the center aisle, and I can see where Cindy and Amy are sitting with the minister in the pews, and I'm about halfway to where they are when suddenly the minister jumps up, and he looks like he's in a panic, and he's all red-faced and flustered, and he literally runs away. And then I get there just in time to hear Amy say to Cindy, well, I think you handled that very well. And I'm like, she handled what very well? Amy says, do you want to tell him? Okay, here's what happened. Apparently, Amy and Cindy were going over the minister's notes about the things he was going to say from the dais that next day. And he says, he's going over what he's, his plans are. And he says, well, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, Pete was a real hard worker and he worked hard every day. And I'll say, you know, he's a real avid fisherman. He really pulled them catfish out of the river. And, uh... And I'll say, you know, if you're ever going to go out and buy a used car, you want to bring old Pete along because he could out-Jew a Jew. <laughs> At which point, <laughs> Cindy says, fun fact, I'm Jewish. Oh, I didn't mean to offend you. I'm real sorry. I didn't, I didn't, mean, I didn't mean anything by it. I didn't mean to offend you. And, she, and Cindy says, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time together today. I understand you wouldn't want to deliberately offend me. I get that. It's fine. But, you know, tomorrow, if you were to say that from the dais, you know, Brad's family, they don't know that you and I have established this relationship, and they might have other Jewish friends. Uh, and, you know, 
you never know like when they're going to get offended on my behalf or someone else might get offended if you were to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take that note. I'll take that note. And then he ran away. And then I arrived. And before I can work up like a full head of steam, Amy jumps up and says, we should go grab lunch. And they grab me and haul me out of there and like put me in a car. And now we are uh, going to a barbecue place called The Pig because the Ozarks. And this turns into kind of a an impromptu tour of my hometown for Cindy. And as we're driving around, conversation sort of naturally turns back to the man of the hour, my stepfather. And the thing about my stepfather is there were eight kids, three from his first marriage. Then that wife died of uterine cancer. Then he married a woman who was bringing three kids from her first marriage. And then she died of a brain aneurysm in the middle of the night, and then my father died, and my mom met my stepfather three years later, and they got married, and now there's eight children in the house. And my stepfather was a miserable man. He resented existence, and probably the thing he most resented about existence was that it was full of other people. Just couldn't (laughs) abide them. But now he had a house full of eight kids, and he had to put a roof over their head and food on the table, and he had to do it all with an eighth-grade education. Uh, he had no, he was not unskilled labor. Every job was on the job training, usually more than one job at a time. At some point, he worked at, a, at an onion ring factory, after which he had to throw away all of his clothes uh, because they smelled so bad. And he did all of this, and it wasn't just the eight kids. It was also all of our cousins and our friends and then anybody who showed up. Anyone who showed up at our door and needed some place to be and somewhere to go, anyone who needed anything, they got it. Every single time. No one ever got turned away at my house. There were all of these strays. They were always showing up there. If you needed a place to be, you got a place to be. It didn't matter what the situation was. And there was a girl who showed up at some point, blonde girl. She was 16. I was 14. She defined French kissing for me. She didn't demonstrate it, just told me the term. And she stayed for like three weeks with us and then she was gone and I still have no idea who that was. Just somebody else who needed a place to be and got it, right? And I'm thinking about this the next day at the service and the minister is up there and he's talking and he's just saying crap. He's he's just, you know, it's, he's up there and he's, uh, you know, Pete was a real hard worker and, uh, He's an avid fisherman, boy. He could really pull those catfish out of the river. And if, if you're going to buy a used car, you want to bring old Pete along because he could finagle with the best of them. <laughs> and then, and then, and then for, for reasons I will never understand for my entire life, he makes dead-on eye contact with me. I'm sitting in the front row, Paul Bear's row, looks me dead in the eyes and says, and you know, Pete may not have had a lot of education. But down here in the South, we got something we call the School of Hard Knocks. And I'm like, is this motherfucker calling me out? Like, is he trying to see if there's any redneck left? Because we'll find out when I fist fight a preacher at a funeral. <laughs> my wife grabs my hand and uh, clamps it down, and I stay seated. And then I feel Amy sort of stand up behind me, and Amy goes up to the dais to say appropriate things. And while she is talking, I find myself thinking about a story she had told me the day before when we were driving around. And she said, you know, I don't think you've ever heard this story. And she was right. And she told me a story about the middle kids, the three kids from his 
my stepfather's second wife's first marriage, when she died, he got a phone call from their birth father's family. And they said, we think those kids should be with us. You know, they're our kin. They belong with us. Hmm. And my stepfather said, you know, uh, they're your blood. I have no legal claim on them. And I guess if you want to come get them, you should come get them. And so they did. They came and they got those kids and took them away. And, and apparently whatever their grand plan was, it did not incorporate the notion that children who had just lost their mother might be having issues. Because they called my stepfather back less than three weeks later and said, well, we just can't handle these kids, these orphaned kids. We just can't handle these kids. And we were wondering if, if you'd come get them. And my stepfather did. No questions asked. He went, he picked them up, he brought them home, put them to bed, woke them up the next day, sent them to school. No questions asked. Never discussed again. And I'm sitting there at the funeral, I'm trying to think to myself, how do you reconcile the legacy of someone who was someone so enraged at life, but who when confronted with a dirty and thankless job that no one else was volunteering to do, to care and feed for all these strays, that in spite of being temperamentally, emotionally, and financially the least qualified person for the job, he was the one who still did it. And I have been thinking about that ever since, trying to reconcile that with my notion of the man. And it definitely, that story changed how I think of my stepfather and, and how it changed it. I'm not entirely sure yet. I am still working that out five years later. I think I'll be working that out for the rest of my life, maybe, trying to reconcile these two images of the man. But on that day, at the funeral, as if to offer me a metaphor for someone doing a thankless job that they were the least qualified person for, the minister returned to the dais. Thank you. Thank you, Brad Lawrence. Keep it going. Oh, my God. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. I got a room at the top of the world tonight I can see everything tonight I got a room where everyone Can have a drink and forget those things that went wrong I got a room at the top of the world tonight I got a room at the top of the world tonight I got a room at the top of the world tonight And I ain't coming
all for this week's episode folks this is tom petty and the heartbreakers behind me now and we just heard from brad lawrence now don't forget to check out his novel his sci-fi novel in podcast form it's called maxine and the planets unknown a really fun way to get off of this planet for a little while have you ever been to our shop page you know our risk store it's 15 percent off everything from june 8th till june 11th at risk-show.com slash shop folks if you've ever wanted to pitch us you know where to find us risk-show.com slash submissions and we have a special page for folks who want to pitch us for just those super short stories that is at risk-show.com slash anecdotes and also follow us on our socials we're at risk show on facebook twitter and instagram and on twitter and instagram i'm at the kevin allison the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a great place to talk about the podcast with fellow fans. Our subreddit is Risk Podcast, and I can't log on to it anymore because no reason. I, I just can't. Apparently, Reddit stops working for some people sometimes. And folks, did you know you can hire me personally for storytelling training? I am currently helping someone with his podcast, someone else with a memoir, someone working on pitches for Risk itself. There's a lot going on, and I've taught all kinds of people storytelling via this one-on-one -on -one training. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, and preachers even. Activists, life coaches, um, you name it. You can find me at kevinallison.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I wish I could feel you tonight Little one, you're so far away I want to reach out Touch your heart
No, I just want to see one thing. I had the real ending was ask my mom. She didn't deserve it. It's angry. It took me a while. I finally realized, yeah, okay. Oh, I, I think the stupid ending was just like, I realized I could be the star of my own life. Oh, that's so stupid. Don't use that. <laughs>